I thought I would introduce myself in a bit of an unusual way, perhaps. Is there anyone here who's 12 to 15 years old? Could I just, just, stick, just a little, stick your hand up a little bit? Okay. Once I was 12 and asked God what his will was for my life, and that night he gave me a dream that changed my whole life. It was a dream about a desert. So thank you for being here today. And may God speak to you. Are there any students here today? Come on, give me a hand. It's great to have you here. Once I was a student, and once I was 20, and collapsed on the floor uh, with a broken heart and desperation, and said, God, what do you have for my life? And the next day, I met a person who changed my life, and I ended up on a plane to the ends of the earth a few months later. So may God speak to you today. And for the rest of you, the seasoned hearts. <laughs> uh, I am with you as one who is in life's journey, in this journey with God, with you. I'm a companion with you of his presence, his pain, and waiting, the waiting we experience in the world. So I'm happy to journey with you today. What we're seeing God do in West Africa is extraordinary. It's absolutely blowing our minds. And yet God is doing extraordinary things all over the world. And we are uh, closing up a series today that we've been in for two months as a church together about how God forges his DNA, his character into us, into normal people and changes the world. And today we're going to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is the most famous woman in the Bible. I also just want to add that I'm grateful my parents-in-law are here today, which is really special. Um, I would like to invite uh, Kate and Ruth and Abu, if you could come up, please. And could we get the two handheld microphones as well, please? We're going to start this uh, time just telling the story of the angel visiting Mary, and, uh, and actually the story of Mary throughout the Bible. And we're just going to let the story speak for itself. Um, as we talk about this story, and this would be a good time for the lights to be dimmed and the music to start, um, I want to invite you to do something that's not very normal for us, to use your imagination. Sometimes we're afraid of imagination because we're afraid we might stray from, you know, the truth of the Bible, whatever. Um, it's not normal for me either. But if we don't enter into the story with, uh, into the emotion of it, into the, the feelings that the people in it are experiencing, then um, it's hard for us to really get a grip on what's going on. So I'm going to invite you, however you want to engage with it, um, to imagine what was this like. I want you to pay attention to Mary in the story, particularly since we're focusing on her today. So this is from Luke 1, starting in verse 26. And I've got these amazing readers. Thank you, guys. <laughs> in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. 
But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and have birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her six months. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home, greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has got great things for me. Holy is his name. Mm-hmm. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, then returned home. Thank you, guys. You can leave the lights down and the music on. After this, Mary faces her fiancé, Joseph, and others finding out. Joseph plans to cut off the betrothal, but God turns up in a dream and tells him that what Mary said was true and that he should still marry her. A few months later, a decree goes out from the Roman leader at the time, named Caesar Augustus, that a census must be taken. Mary travels to Bethlehem, the hometown of her fiancé, Joseph. Sorry, I was good that. She gives birth to Jesus and lays him in a manger. Shepherds turn up that evening, having been visited by angels, and telling them the birth of the Messiah. She watches as they kneel before him 
and they leave glorifying and praising God for what they've seen and heard. Eight days later, after she's given birth, Mary and Joseph travel six miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to present Jesus in the temple. An older devout man named Simeon is there, and he speaks of how Mary's baby is salvation, a light for the Gentiles and glory to the people of Israel. Mary marvels at what has been said about Jesus. Then Simeon turns to Mary and tells her in Luke 2.34, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary is left with great news and painful news. When Jesus is too, they're visited by magi, wise men from the east who had seen a unique and new star and had been told to follow it to the Messiah. Mary sees them bow down and present gifts to her little Jesus. That night, Joseph has a dream and tells Mary that they've been warned to flee, to flee to Egypt, that King Herod wants to kill her son. Mary lives in a foreign land for two years without her family her people, her language, with a toddler. Eventually, Mary and Joseph move back to humble Nazareth, where they settle, and Jesus begins to grow up, learning from his father, Joseph, who is a carpenter. When Jesus was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph and Jesus caravan to the temple, where Jesus amazes the religious teachers, and somehow he doesn't end up with a family on the way home. Uh... Luke 2 says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Child, why have you done this to us? His mother asked. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand this statement he was making to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Here an anxious Mary deals with her anxiety, with pondering, treasuring, and remembering. As Jesus approaches 30, Mary and Jesus are found at the wedding, the wedding of Cana. Mary asked Jesus to do a miracle to reveal himself as the Messiah. She's expecting that this is the time that he will wow the world. In John 2, we are told, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. We're going to look at two more scenes, three more scenes in Mary's life. Um, But we're going to pause the story now and we're going to just take a few reflections. So thank you. You can turn the lights on if you like and the music. We're going to look at three, uh, three things from this story. The first one is that God births the extraordinary through the ordinary. The first glimpse we get of Mary is an encounter with God through an angel. With this incredible and shocking news, Mary is troubled and wonders what sort of greeting this is. I think that's a great example of British understatement. (laughs) What sort of greeting is this? 
Uh, anyway, the angel begins to explain that God has chosen her for the highest task any woman could ever have. This was an extreme honor, an honor that every girl had longed for for generations. However, this news would cost Mary more than she ever knew. It would cost her reputation, her plans, her wedding date, her expectations of her life. Mary was a humble woman in earthly terms and yet was ready to say yes to an extraordinary request. In other words, Lord, I'm available. My heart is yours. My body is yours. My womb is yours. My life is yours. I'm willing for you to use me, an ordinary girl, to bring about your extraordinary purposes. Why? Why would Mary do this? In Mary's song of praise, which is called the Magnificat, she highlights that God works in unexpected ways, that he's mindful to the humble, his mercy is on those who fear him, he scatters the proud, he brings down rulers, he lifts up the humble, and it ends with just as he promised. Mary contrasts how the world works and how God works, that God is merciful to the humble and opposes the proud. She knows deep in her core that God's ways are higher. And she's had the examples of many, many heroes of the faith who have gone before her in the Old Testament. And so she's seen firsthand that this is how God works. Mary refers to 12 scriptures during her song of praise, ending with just as he promised. Just as he promised. Mary was someone who even in her youth and even in her ordinary life, knew that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. He's a keeper of his promises, even if she doesn't understand the ins and outs of what he's up to. Elizabeth confirms this by saying to Mary that she's blessed because she believes that God will do as he's promised. Her yes was not because she was extraordinary, but because God was extraordinary. Another way of saying this is that God burst the supernatural through the humble. The Bible is full of examples of God choosing the humble, the unexpected people, to bring about his supernatural work. Those who have a grip on who he is and who allow him to forge his DNA into them. Just think of the Beatitudes where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This is the way God works. Think of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Ruth, Esther, David, Elisha, Jeremiah, Rahab, Joshua, Samuel, and more. This is the example God gives us of doing an amazing work. It begins with a humble, ordinary person. So what's the key to being forged into a useful vessel? How do we get to where we can say yes so quickly to God's mission and calling for us? What's the key to being humble? It's found in knowing that we are favored of the Lord. Not because of our own merits, qualifications, education, social status, maternal language, family heritage, or an Oxford University diploma. The first thing God says to Mary is that she is highly favored. And this word only occurs two times in the New Testament. 
It occurs here, and it occurs in Ephesians 1.6, where it talks about the glorious grace we have been freely given in the one that God loves. It's often translated as full of grace in this passage, but a more accurate translation is Mary, the one who has been given much grace, who is fully favored by God. Mary was shown two kinds of abundant favor from God. Firstly, to be the mother of the Messiah. Secondly, the underlying favor of what the Bible calls this grace. Grace is the spiritual DNA which God passes on to us as his adopted children. Grace means that God pours out overabundant, unmerited, undeserved favor. It means that there is no need for us to be sufficient for these extraordinary callings and tasks. We only need need to be willing to let him be sufficient for us. Grace not only qualifies us to be his children, but it empowers ordinary people to do extraordinary things, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. It means that though we are troubled at times, like Mary was, though we're confused and unclear, though we don't always know the implications of what he's asking of us, because we are in him, in his abundant grace, we can say yes to him to do the impossible in and through us. Because his power, his grace, and his spiritual DNA is available for us. God's amazing plan and purpose for the earth to do extraordinary things and let's Bringing the Savior to earth is extraordinary. But who did he do it through? A 12, maybe 14-year-old girl. This is how God works. He brings about his amazing purposes through normal people. The angel said that God's Holy Spirit would come upon Mary for this task and overshadow her. When Jesus went up to heaven, he said that he would send his Spirit upon us. And it would equip us for what we could never do ourselves. I'm just going to read from Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. You're adopted today through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace. That's where that word is used again, the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Mary's troubled heart was stilled. Her confusion was overcome by her faith in what God had said and what God was promising Grace qualified Mary and he equipped Mary. The message version of uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. Because we carry this message around in unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. I brought you a clay pot from West Africa. It is adorned, so it doesn't quite fit the picture, but, um, but it's a simple pot. Like God says, we are clay pots that carry his amazing treasure. The second point is that, oh, sorry, this is a photo, photo credit Tim Beer, thank you, um, of 
them creating these clay pots. They form, the, in West Africa, they form these pots and then they stick them in a fire and they cover them with a bunch of rubbish to sort of create an oven effect. Um, these are pots being forged for their purposes. The second point that I'd like to draw out is that God forges us for patience. The nature of birth involves waiting and involves challenge. Of course, it's all for a joyful purpose, but no one likes waiting, but all of us wait. We all wish to escape it. What have you waited for? What are you waiting for? And how are you waiting? I got a smile from Grace. I, could, I know what she's waiting for. <laughs> Wonderful engagement um, that happened. Today is the first day of Advent of 2019. But Mary was the first person to live in Advent. This time of waiting since Jesus came into the world and yet promises to live again. This time that we, were in, that we are in this lifelong season of Advent... We are all waiting, but what does it mean to wait well? What does it look like to wait patiently? What would it be like to wait with hope? Mary spent her whole life waiting for Jesus to be revealed as the Messiah. Her nine months of pregnancy, waiting in Egypt to go back to Nazareth, waiting for him to be revealed as the Messiah at the wedding, Jesus on the cross, waiting, maybe he'll deliver himself, waiting for Jesus to rise again. One thing to note about Mary's waiting is that in two places it says she treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. She was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus and probably was one of the main sources for large parts of the Gospel of Luke. Mary watched, she waited, she listened, she pondered, she studied, she treasured. Her waiting was intentional and hopeful. Her waiting was active waiting, pressing into God waiting, prayerful, faith-filled waiting. We can wait well because it's God who is the author of this story. God has favored us and poured out his grace as he promised, and he's promised there is good and purpose in our waiting. Therefore, we can hold on to him. He has promised to bring eternal glory to himself through his purposes on earth. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. You can't speed up the growth of a field. Try it. Fruitfulness, harvest, has a timetable. Uh, this is the first year that I've really taken up gardening in West Africa. And one of the things that amazes me is that all kinds of things, other than weeds, are growing that I never planted. Someone else did, or somehow God did. And after who knows how I've been there five years in this house, four years in this house, and it never came up. But with watering and waiting and a bit of persevering, things are growing. The same with the Fulani growth. The first missionaries came to the Fulani in our town over 30 years ago, and, and many, many, many left before seeing any fruit. And here we are seeing bits of fruit, and we're not even there. 
And yet God, in his time, is doing something. God is saying, be patient. Just wait. I'm coming. Look for me. Watch for me. My love and goodness is threaded all through your story. God's faithfulness is what empowers us for faithfulness. And see, that's, that's where he's forging his DNA into us. It's as we soak ourselves and meditate on what he's done and who he is that we begin to find the endurance and the grace that we need for faithfulness. Remember, he says in Isaiah 40 that those who hope in him will have renewed strength. One thing that can keep us from waiting well is pain. When we've given our yes to Jesus, you know, the Mary, the the young, innocent, naive, um, preciously free-hearted Mary saying yes to God, when we've done that and yet walked a bit of journey with God, we often encounter pain. God is birthing something supernatural us and it's painful. With pain, we can become impatient, angry, cold, and even numb. We can lose hope. We can put up barriers to protect ourselves from trusting God again, from raw, true, vulnerable surrender. We're afraid of it because it hurt. And we begin to lose our freedom, our joy, our passion, even our vision or our love, because we're hurting. We tend to focus on the beginning of Mary's story, the joy, Emmanuel finally coming to earth, and it is wonderful, but there's a deeper joy that God is weaving into his story, and it might be masked. I'd like you to focus on the scene of Mary at the cross where she sees her son dying. The soldiers begin fighting over his garment as the largely silent hours go by, Jesus hanging in pain. He's struggling to breathe. Then the soldiers pick up Jesus' garment, and they decide not to divide it. Why? Well, it was woven in one piece without a seam. Now, I'm inviting your imagination here, but who would have woven Jesus such a fine garment? Likely his mother. Imagine the pain in her heart watching her son crucified. Imagine the thoughts that might have been going through her mind. Imagine the flashbacks to when Simeon said that a sword would pierce her heart. These are all violent, painful images, but so is the thought of forging At this moment, Jesus turns to his mother. This moment that uh, right after when the soldiers decide not to tear his garment, Jesus turns to his mother, showing her that she will be now cared for by John. As Mary's son dies, Mary is watching her son die, and yet in the process of that, he is being birthed as her savior. There's a shift taking place. Mary's heart, which once believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her, is stretched beyond anything imaginable. And yet, she keeps looking, trusting, waiting, believing. Have you ever lost a child 
or something very precious to you? Have you ever watched a loved one suffer? Mary had every reason to let the pain, the confusion, and the horror destroy every bit of faith that she had. After all, it didn't make sense. God had promised a Messiah, and there had been so much joy. But now, to watch her son tortured. I can't even imagine such a a more painful or traumatic experience. You know, sometimes when we're in Africa, you know, I think about the kids and I worry about the kids, but I can't imagine watching one of my children tortured. Mary's love for Jesus cost her everything. But now she was witnessing Jesus giving even more for her. Mary kept believing, even though it broke her to the core. She kept waiting prayerfully, painfully, not letting go of what God had promised. So how do we wait patiently with pain? How can we remain steadfast and believe when we're in the middle of what seems like a horror film? How do we endure the fiery forging in order to be made more like Jesus? I'm going to play a short video for you. Can we have a video, please? Peter 4, 12, and 13 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you may share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. John Piper says, Steadfastness looks like falling forward into God's grace wrestling hard, crying out, and bringing the broken pieces of your heart to God. It's looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who is perfectly steadfast through the most excruciating trial. He endured, he cried out, he became broken on your behalf so that his steadfastness could become our steadfastness. Pete Gregg says in his new book, How to Pray, it is impossible to grow in faith without growing in faithfulness. It is impossible to grow in faithfulness if all your prayers are answered right away. But when you endure delays, 
disappointments and discouragements without giving up or backing down, when you keep beating on heaven's doors with bruised knuckles in the dark, just let that picture soak in. These are the unlikely conditions in which your faith fills up, fills out, and eventually becomes full. And what do we call this kind of defiance? The slow and steady seasoning of faith? We have come to call it faithfulness. Because it's precisely that. Faith filled up with frustration, failure, and pain. It's what simple faith looks like in maturity. The fulfillment of the cross. Are you holding back from Jesus because you're hurt? You're wounded. You're weary. What would it look like for you to fall forward into God's grace? To take your bruised knuckles and to keep knocking on heaven's doors. To let God forge hope into your waiting again. And for you to give him all, all the pieces of your heart. To trust in the brokenness and steadfastness of Christ so that his steadfastness can become your steadfastness. What would it look like to gaze on the master who is making you into his masterpiece? Mary saw Jesus rise again, and her heart was healed, and she was filled with fresh hope. Imagine seeing him again, hearing his voice, a mother's pride, her pride at realizing her son had sacrificed his life to save the world. This time, Mary approaches Jesus as her savior, what was it like when only a short time later he left again and he went up to heaven? At that scene where he's ascended, you see the disciples and presumably Mary, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you finally going to do what you said you would do? He says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. He's saying to us today, you won't understand my timing. You won't know when I will do all I have promised. But in the meantime, I will pour out my spirit on you. And you will be my witnesses on the earth until I return. In the meantime, I will forge you for my extraordinary purposes. Even Mary was left with longing. The last time she's mentioned in the Bible, the very last glimpse we have of Mary in the Bible, she's waiting. She's waiting in the upper room with the disciples for the Lord, for Jesus to send his Holy Spirit. The one who knew Jesus the most intimately of any human being was left in Advent in waiting for the fullness of his promises. I wanted to just share a, a little testimony of, um, from my life this year. I experienced um, just a lot of uh, disappointment and doubt. And um, I was in a dark place for about four months. Um, a dark place meaning it was hard to believe in God. It was hard to trust in God. It was hard to, I couldn't see what he was doing, so it was hard to go on. Um, I also experienced that physically. 
um, uh, through various sicknesses. And um, at one point, uh, I had a Skype call with Debbie Berlotti. Some of you will know her. And we had, she invited me to sort of engage with a picture about God. And I saw Jesus in the picture very far away from me. He was protecting me, but he was far away from me. And, and just Debbie, all Debbie said was, that's lovely that he's your protector, but is he really that far away? And suddenly for me, a light bulb went on that I had forgotten how near Jesus was to me. And that, uh, that moment brought me enough hope to keep going and to keep going and to see him and to believe in him and to walk with him through my brokenness and through my pain and through my confusion and it's only gotten better <laughs> since then. But we do, we go through these seasons of forgetting. My final point is that God forges us for eternity with him. He's forging us to be like him and to be with him forever. And so there is purpose in our waiting because God himself will finish the story. We've been looking for eight weeks at different stories. And now it's our turn. It's our story. It's our generation God will finish our story, and it will end in great celebration and joy. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. Faith only makes sense in light of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness enables us to be faithful. All our waiting will be met in the glorious return of our King. He will come with a triumphant shout and he will wipe every tear, every single one. I don't know your tears, but God knows them. Every single one he's going to wipe away. Every single one of your scars he's going to turn into a beauty mark. <laughs> I have them, you have them. And he's going to redeem it all and he's going to turn all of our losses into gain. He will have completed the supernatural work that he began and worked through ordinary people like you and me. He will bring us into his eternal rest from our tired, weary waiting places. We will be like him and we will see him as he is. Hudson Taylor, one of the first missionaries to China in the early 1800s, said there are three, three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible, then it is difficult, and then it is done. I put this photo of stepping stones because I imagine it that way. The first stone is, this is impossible, God. This is outrageously beyond me. What are you doing? What are you calling me to? And then it is the difficulty of persevering and doing what we cannot do ourselves and drawing on his spirit. But then the last stone, it's, it's complete. He's done it. As we wrap up this series, we remember through Abraham's yes, God forged faith, which brought blessing to all the nations, and miraculously began generations of faithful people. 
Through Moses' yes, God forged care and freedom to suffering slaves and showed his miraculous power to the nations. Through Joshua's yes, God forged a leader's heart and Joshua led God's people into faith and into the promised land. Through David's yes, God overcame giants and brought forth hundreds of worship songs that would inspire billions of believers for thousands of years. Through Paul's yes, God showed his paternal love through working with imperfect people, and he took the gospel further than it had ever gone before. With Mary's yes, he birthed the Messiah into the flesh to save the world and showed us that his extraordinary work comes through ordinary people. I hope you've got that by now. And it's our turn. You've been hearing about this for eight weeks. What's he saying to you? What's he stirring in you? What's your response to him today? And I had two sort of categories. One is for the young One is for the ones like Mary, who are at the beginning of their journey with God. What would it look, what could God do with your yes? What would it look like to say yes to him? And the second is for those of you who, with more seasoned hearts, who said yes to him once, but maybe there's some sort of blockage because of pain. Maybe you're weary. Maybe you're wounded. Maybe you're in a place that you... You know, you can't get yourself out of. What's he saying to you today? We're just going to take a minute or two of quiet. And I'm going to leave these questions up here and let you listen to God. Thank you.